Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. I want to thank our listeners for coming back week after week to hear our author interviews and our short stories and my own little commentary on the world events of the week. We've got a lot to get to today, so I'm going to change up the format a little bit today just for this one episode. I'm not going to bring you a short story this week. And the reason is because we've got an absolutely fantastic interview coming up with true crime author Nate Henley, who wrote The Boy on the Bicycle, his most recent book. And I want to talk to him about that. And um, I also have promised our listeners a review of On Writing by Stephen King. So I want to get to that, and I don't want to make the episode too unwieldy and too long. So I am going to forego the short story today. But before we begin any of that, uh, I'm sure that unless you're living under a rock, you're all aware of the news this week and the hearings between Dr. Christine Blasey Ford and Judge Kavanaugh. What a crazy week it's been. Um, I heard a pundit this morning make a comment that women have been triggered all week. And uh, I attribute that, by the way, to Ben Ferguson as spoken on CNN in defense of Judge Kavanaugh. Well, to this I say, Mr. Ferguson, how dare you? How dare you speak about the triggering of women with those invisible air quotes around the word triggered? You have no right, sir. This is not your arena to be speaking in at all. At least I don't believe it is. And if you believe it is, then I dare you to come on air and tell us how your understanding is so large that you can dare to speak about the triggering of women. Am I angry? Yes. And my perception is that there are a lot of angry women and men out there right now. I am relieved that there is said to be an FBI hearing going on over the coming week, and we'll talk about that a little bit next week. I hope it will not be too restricted, and I hope they can get to the bottom of matters and that they will share those matters and those findings honestly and openly with the public at the end of the week. It's pretty clear to most political analysts that the rush to put Judge Kavanaugh on SCOTUS has to do with the double jeopardy clause that is uh, the hearing that's coming up in October over whether double jeopardy should be allowed, whether a crime should be allowed to be tried at both the federal and state levels. Now, in case you're not clear on what the actual... um, what the actual impact of that finding or ruling would be, if it is found that a crime cannot be tried at both the federal and state levels... That would free Trump up, President Trump, to um, pardon, to use his pardon power freely because uh, right now, as things stand legally, a lot of these crimes that are being indicted are capable of being tried at the state level as well as the federal level, meaning that there's no pardon protection for the accused. If Judge Kavanaugh finds himself on the Supreme Court, he is mightily expected to favor a ruling that would overturn that finding and would uh, not allow for a crime to be tried at both levels and would therefore free up the pardon power for people like Manafort and Cohen and all kinds of people. In any event, uh, that's where we stand and that's why the rush to put Judge Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. 
The hearings themselves, I can't comment and I won't comment on who's right and who's wrong. I told you my uh, findings of the statistics about female allegations against male assault last week for our episode. And just to repeat those findings and to give you a little more information that I found, 94.5 of all allegations made by women against men of a sexual assault nature are found to be well-founded. That means that 5.5% of such allegations are found not to be completely substantiated. That doesn't mean they're not believable or that they're not believed by law enforcement. It simply means that law enforcement finds there is not sufficient backing evidence to be able to bring the claim to trial. So overwhelmingly, women are thought to be telling the truth and are found to have uh, supporting evidence to be telling the truth. Does that mean women never lie? No, but it does mean that the numbers are in favor of females being believed when they make these claims. Not only that, but online over the past week, I've repeatedly heard the argument coming, well, it's not only men who commit violent crimes. That's true. We, we all have access to the news. We all know that some women do uh, commit violent crimes against both men and children. However, again, let's turn to the actual statistics. 97% of violent crimes committed in the Western world are committed by men against women or children. 97%. That means that 3% of violent crimes are committed either by women or by children against either men, against women, or against children. 3%. So, you know, does that mean that uh, women never commit crimes? Of course not. Women do commit crimes. They're quite capable of it. My experience with the female thinking from women that I've known over nearly 60 years of life is that women tend to be caregivers both by nature and by nurture. We don't want to come out with claims that will hurt men, and men know this. And yes, I have personally experienced that particular aspect of my nature being used against me. The argument being, no, don't tell anyone because you'll ruin this man. You know, and the implication is, well, I'm already ruined by what was done to me, so there's no help for that. Why turn around and now ruin him? So we keep silent. So we allow men to go on with their lives, their families, their careers. So we allow ourselves to live in our own ruin silently. Today is September 30th, it's Sunday, and there has been a generalized call for a female blackout on social media. The thinking is that we stand together and we make a statement by using a black background profile pic and no uh, picture of ourselves for the entire day. And this is supposed to give a message that um, we stand together in unity. Sorry, sisters, I don't black out my profile picture for anything, and I will not be invisible for anything. I spent too many years of my life being invisible, and I'm sure that many of my sisters out there feel exactly the same way. I sympathize and I understand the cause, and so what I've tried to do on social media today is use the little um, 
the little text background in black to show my sympathy. But I will not black out my profile picture. I will not be invisible. I am not afraid. I will not be silent. And that's my take on the week. Have I been angry? Yes, yes. We can all be accused of being triggered, as Ben Ferguson so aptly pointed out. But again, I say, if we are triggered, it's with cause. If we are angry, it's with cause. Enough. And that's my take. Now, I want to turn to my promised review of On Writing by Mr. Stephen King. I read it many years ago, and I enjoyed it very much, but I didn't really pay great attention to it at the time, I have to confess. Um, now for this podcast, I wanted to revisit it, and I wanted to, to renew my take on it so that I could talk to our listeners a little bit about it. It really is a brilliant piece of work. That's not all I'll say, I promise. But I do encourage you to go out and buy either the Kindle or the print or the Audible edition of it. I downloaded the Audible edition so that I could listen to it as I'm walking and doing my usual things and get through it in time for this podcast, and I did get through it. What I liked about it, well, a number of things. I'm not going to go into the specific advice that Stephen King gives to writers because to obtain that advice, you really do need to buy his book. Uh, suffice it to say that the advice is exceptional advice and should be heeded by all writers. What I want to talk about more is his prelude to the advice, the stories that he talks about his own life, and how he uses them in two specific manners, because it really is brilliant the way he weaves his own life experience into this work on writing. He tells stories from his own childhood. He tells stories from his own adulthood, from his marriage, from his background, from his alcoholism and drug use, and from his redemption from those, from his uh, recovery from that illness of addiction. He talks about all these personal aspects of his life and these personal experiences, and he does two things with those stories. First of all, he gives the keen listener or reader an insight into how he has used those experiences in his fiction. You'd have to be blind not to see the connection between the monsters that he has witnessed and that he has seen within himself and the monsters he has written about in his fiction. You'd likewise have to be blind not to pick up on his childhood and the environment that he grew up in and how he uses it as a backdrop for almost all of his fiction. Um, it really is. It's a brilliant tie-in. The other thing that he does is he uses these stories to tell us if we are really paying attention not just how he's drawn his own fictional backgrounds, but how we can somehow use those experiences to better understand the actual advice he's giving, the nuts and bolts technical on writing as a teacher that he is giving us. Um, the stories, almost every one of them ties in somehow to the actual technical, advi technical advice that he is giving later in the book. So listen for those connections or look for those connections when you're reading as well. They're, they're more subtle. They're more subtle than the first set of connections, but they do exist. And I, I was just charmed by them. I was, um, 
I found them to be quite magical, really. And for that, as well as for the very valuable advice that he gives, I highly recommend On Writing by Stephen King. And that's my book report. I hope it wasn't too um, too loosely based. Um, again, I can't give away too much of it because it's not a long book, and I don't think that Mr. King would appreciate my giving away too much of it. I can say I highly recommend it. It stood the test of a reread, or in my case, a listen. And uh, that's really something because there's not a lot of things you can read the second time and feel as strongly about them or even more strongly than you did the first time. So with that having been said, I want to introduce you to today's author, Nate Henley. I first interviewed Nate back in February, and then on my August 25th episode, I did an actual review of his latest book, The Boy on the Bicycle. And uh, that is the story of uh, Ron Moffat, who was wrongly accused and convicted of the murder of seven-year-old Wayne Mallett in the CNE Fairgrounds in 1956, I believe, the murder took place. And it was a case of wrongful conviction that's been nearly forgotten, but has since been revived, I'm pleased to see, thanks to the hard work that both Mr. Moffat and Nate Henley have done in trying to bring this case of wrongful conviction back into memory. Nate has long, uh, has long been a true crime writer in the Toronto neighborhood, and um, he's known in Canadian crime circles, and I believe he's becoming more widely known universally, uh, globally as well, thanks to his hard work. So I do recommend his book, The Boy on the Bicycle. Please look for it at all major retailers, and you won't be disappointed. And like on writing, it's not a long book, and it is very compelling. I, I assure you it will hold your interest. I read the print book, The Boy on the Bicycle, rather than the Audible. I don't know whether it's available in Audible, but I know it is available on Kindle for those of you who love uh, electronic reading. And now, without further ado, I bring you today's interview with Mr. Nate Henley. Please give him a big Dead to Rights welcome. Good morning, Nate. It's Donna Carrick, and welcome to Dead to Rights. How are you today? I'm well. I'm well. How are you doing, Donna? I'm well. I'm so sorry. We just had a technical glitch a moment ago, but I'm glad that we've got Nate finally on the line and everything is working. And uh, <laughs> I will keep an eye on it and make sure everything keeps working. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Yeah. You had told me a little bit about your canoe trip this summer. Um, yes. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, well, I've been canoeing. Um, almost every summer uh, for the last five or six years with some guys that I met through my gym um, doing squash and we all enjoy you know camping and canoeing so this summer we went to Killarney Park uh, which I love and it was a good trip we were supposed to be there for nine days we only were there for seven because one of the people in the group um, cut their thumb open pretty badly and we had to get it stitched uh, but otherwise, it was terrific. Uh, very few bugs this year. Mm -hmm. uh, last, uh, was, we were at Algonquin Park last year and got eaten alive. Uh, yeah. This year, it was uh, very low bug. Uh, unfortunately, we couldn't do campfires, though, because there was a fire ban oh. in dry conditions. Oh, that's too bad. That's too bad. Yeah, yeah. For anyone who may that. be listening outside of Canada, we've got some of the finest parks in the world. And, oh, uh, yeah. 
I really encourage you to make a trip. Um, and we'd also been talking, Nate, about how important physical exercise is for writers and getting outdoors Absolutely. and Absolutely. just connecting with both the world and your environment to, to clear the cobwebs out. Yeah. That's a, good, that's a good way to put it because I found that writing is a very solitary task, even if you're you know interviewing people and such. And you're sitting at a desk a lot of the time, so it really helps to get out and get the endorphins flowing. And uh, you don't have to go on a canoe trip. To do no, this. You can no. Just take a walk around the block. That's right. Know. That's right. I'm a big proponent of walking. I, I try for the ten thousand steps every day, and I I swim at least three mornings a week. And uh, been getting the kids out swimming early in the morning with me before work. It's really important. Now, um, for anyone who doesn't know, Nate is a repeat guest, and thank you very much for coming back to us, Nate. Um, We first interviewed Nate on February 4th about his true crime work, and um, but then I noticed that uh, you'd come out with a new book, The Boy on the Bicycle, which is a fantastic book. I actually interviewed, I actually reviewed it, I should say, on our August 25th episode. Everybody go back and listen to the full review. But the short version is that it was a chilling, compelling, and wonderfully researched story of wrongful conviction and the resulting additional murders of innocent children that ensued. And there are three primary um, characters. I'll call them characters, but these are real people. Keep that in mind, everyone. The first being Ron Moffat, who was a 14-year-old troubled um, teen from a family who was an easy target for investigators. Um, The second was the victim, Wayne Mallett, who was a 7-year-old brutally murdered on September 15th of 1956 on the C&E fairgrounds. And the third being Peter Woodcock, who was a 17-year-old sociopath who was unwanted as an infant and was shuffled from foster home to foster home until he was finally taken in by Susan and Frank Maynard, who gave him the benefits of all of their love and privilege. Um, But it wasn't enough because even they admitted that from the beginning he was a troubled child. So um, tell us a little bit about these three characters to start with, these three actual human beings, I should say. Um, well, to uh, set the scene, you know, it's 1956 Toronto, a uh, very different place than it is now. It's the second biggest city in Canada after Montreal, a uh, very low crime rate, uh, and a very much more innocent era. We were called Toronto the Good right up until absolutely, the absolutely. 80s, really, weren't we? Yeah, and in 1956, there was nine recorded murders in the whole city for the whole year, and um, the concept of stranger danger didn't exist. People would let their kids play out on the lawn without supervision, and uh, into this milieu, little boy, Wayne Mallett, seven years old, was murdered at the CNE grounds, Canadian National Exhibition, on uh, September 15, 1956, and the only uh, suspect Uh, he 
himself had experienced uh, some turbulence in his own life. He had been um, caught trying to break into the St. Lawrence Market uh, with a friend when he was younger, for which he received probation. So he was, you know, like, on balance a good kid, but had some, you know, difficulties in his life. Mm-hmm. Ron had worked at the CNE, and right after Wayne Mallet uh, was murdered, Ron got in a disagreement with his parents and decided to run away. Um, and by running away, that meant he sort of hid in his own apartment building in sort of a cubbyhole. His parents reported he was missing, and unfortunately that was the worst thing they could do because the police knew that the suspect in the case was a teenage boy, and they were investigating all missing teenage kids because they thought um, that the boy might have got into hiding. Mm-hmm. So they went to um, the Moffat apartment, they found Ron in his hiding spot, and they put two and two together. Ron had worked at the CNE and um, was a teenager uh, and had, you know, a bit of a rough and ready background. They took him to the station and interrogated him, and Mm -hmm. he eventually made a false confession. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the false confession was interesting because Ron himself has said uh, that he could not ride a bicycle at the time because he had been, you know, uh, had some hearing damage. So it affected his balance. So he actually, that was one physical one sport he couldn't do. Police, however, claimed that uh, Ron um, had spent the evening, that the evening that Wayne was murdered, Ron had spent in a movie theater, uh, the Metro Theater at 677 Oer Street, and police claimed that he slipped out, stole a bike, rode to the CNE where he used to work, uh, encountered little Wayne, accidentally murdered him for no apparent reason, uh, left the scene, ditched the bike, ate a meal at a restaurant, and went back to the theater. Yes, all without his friends, because he did have friends with him at the theater, yep, all yep. without them noticing his absence. Right, no one, you know, with theoretically, no one noticed his absence, and he comes back to the theater, and no one notices anything amiss. Like, mm-hmm. you would think most 14-year-olds who just murdered a child with their bare hands might be sweaty, upset, freaking out, screaming, panicking. Nothing like that was reported. Uh, However, at the time, you know, again, I keep referencing this is the 1950s, no one could comprehend why anyone would make a false confession. That concept was just off the radar. And we'll come back to the topic of false confessions because I really do want to pick your brain about that. But before we do, you've actually... You've led in beautifully to the third real human character, Peter Woodcock, because by talking about how you would think a normal teenager in those circumstances would react, being sweaty, being nervous, being upset, Peter Woodcock, on the other hand, was an obvious sociopath, and none of that would really have applied, would it? Absolutely, absolutely. He was, uh, as you had mentioned in your description, he was a very odd person, very unsociable, his classmates didn't like him, uh, he had all these bizarre kind of habits, like he loved, he memorized the Toronto uh, transit schedules, he would frequently disappear on buses for hours, um, and he loved to ride a bike. He would ride a bike around the city, and when he was um, in his mid-teens, he started approaching children, um, he would say, hey, look at my bike, 
take them for a ride, and then sexually molest them. He mm-hmm. became a predator, pervert, and he was known for doing this. Uh, so he was actually riding around the city doing this, uh, and he continued to do it after Ron was arrested. And again, police didn't, no one clued in that, you know, there's this other predator out there. Mm-hmm. And sadly enough, uh, one month after uh, Ron was um, picked up, arrested, and put into custody, a second child was murdered, mm-hmm. Gary Morris, or, um, who was a little boy picked up by Peter Woodcock uh, in downtown Toronto, taken to Cherry Beach, and uh, molested and killed. And so we had two child murders uh, in the city. And again, this is a city with a very low crime rate. And people at the time couldn't even really, the concept of anyone sexually molesting kids, was even that was off the radar. Yeah. Like a lot of people didn't grasp that children could be the victim of a sexual predator. Yeah, in particular boys. And that's a whole other sad story yep. we'll get yep. into one day. Absolutely. Yeah. So, by the um, by the end of October 1956, we had two dead children in Toronto, and police are still convinced that Ron Moffat is guilty, mm-hmm. even though there's another obvious killing in almost the exact same victim profile. That's what I was going to say. The M.O. was that. very similar too, wasn't it? Pardon me. The M.O. was was very similar. Absolutely, absolutely. And when I look back in the articles, there's this bizarre speculation like this one police source says well maybe a um somebody who was like a psychotic person read about the first killing of wayne mallet and went out and imitated it uh-huh and uh-huh. you're like okay so you're <laughs> saying and again witnesses um the second boy the morris boy was kidnapped in front of a friend who identified a teenage boy on a bicycle as the culprit so police are basically saying two different teenage boys on bicycles were approaching kids, uh, molesting them and killing them, mm-hmm. which, you know, defied, like, you're like, okay, I don't think so. But it didn't matter because Ron had confessed. So December 1956, he's put on trial and he's found guilty. Yeah, yeah. Very little evidence against him except this confession and didn't matter. And then another child was killed. Correct. January 1957, uh, Carol Voice little girl was approached in the east end of Toronto. Uh, She was playing with a friend. She was four years old. A boy on a bicycle approaches. These two little kids are playing on a lawn. And the boy on the bike, who was Peter Woodcock, initially asked if the little... There were two children, a boy and a girl, Carol and her friend. And uh, the boy on the bike initially asked the little boy if he wanted to take a ride. And then he, at the last minute, changed his mind and picked Carol. Took Carol into the Dawn Valley and uh, just brutalized her. I won't go into the details because they're just horrific. Yeah, we won't re-victimize these children for sure. And uh, for the third time, a witness saw a, quote, boy on a bicycle leaving the crime scene. So this is the third murder in which uh, um, the main suspect is somebody riding a bike. Mm-hmm. And this was the murder that finally authorities realized we've got a serial predator on our hands, and the word serial killer didn't exist at the time, 
but this is a major incident, and the press coverage becomes really frenzied at this point. Mm-hmm. Like they had gone, and obviously the first two murders were very big news, but this was just like, I think I mentioned one of the papers put like eight pages, like page front page to page eight was just coverage of Carol Voice because they finally realized this is a very, very, very serious um, situation. Would you like me to explain how the case was resolved, or shall we get to that later? Um, Yeah, yeah, let's spend a little bit of time on that, because before, but before we do, um, for our listeners, keep in mind, there are a number of things at play. It's very easy for us to blame the police, and certainly there was some blame on their part, in not making connections, in not listening to the boy when he said he didn't ride a bicycle, in not listening to his witnesses who said he was at the theater. There's certainly blame there. But on the other hand, this was 1956. The police did not have computerized records like we have now That's to be right. able to make connections in modus operandi, in witness accounts, in things like that that might correlate. And so, you know, and it, 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 so there's a mix of things at play. And also there is that false confession. So, yes, right. go ahead, Nate, and tell us how it finally resolved, and then we're going to talk a little bit about false confession. Sure, sure. Just to step, uh, one one thing just to step back is also 1956, no DNA technology. Yes. So police, if um, the first child had been bitten, Wayne Mallet, so obviously if that was the case, then the DNA, DNA from the suspect would be on the child, but that technology didn't exist. You didn't have surveillance cameras because nowadays uh, all you would have to do is check security cameras and there would probably be some image of either the little boy wandering on the CNE or um, him and you know the boy on the bicycle yeah. uh, riding by. Those technologies didn't exist. Now what happened um, in the case uh, was that if Ron had been arrested and that was due to sloppy police work, Peter Woodcock was arrested due to good police work. Yes. After, after Carol Voice was murdered, a bunch of police officers in North York kind of it rang a bell. They're like, hey, wait a minute. This little girl was killed by a teenager in the Don Valley. And previously, a few months earlier, they'd had this bizarre incident where a teenage boy took a little girl into the Don Valley. And her parents reported her being kidnapped. They, you know, eventually found the girl, and the boy was Peter Woodcock. Mm-hmm. So they're like, hey, okay, maybe it's the same suspect, because mm-hmm. that seems like a pretty weird kind of pattern. They look through their notes, and again, this is where you mentioned the lack of computer files. They had to look through their handwritten, what are called occurrences or occurrence reports, and finally they come up with, oh, that the boy... Um, excuse me, in the previous incident was Peter Woodcock, and here's his address. Mm-hmm. They went to his school, um, picked him up, took him to the station, and initially he denied it, and he used the same excuse that he used previously, that, oh, well, it must have been a kid who looked like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and very quickly, though, he confessed. And unlike the Moffat confession, this appears to be completely uncoerced and cooperated because um, as I said they were witnesses each of the three child murders had witnesses who saw a boy in a bicycle leaving
and mm-hmm. that fit, you know, Peter Woodcock's description pretty well. He also confessed to molesting about a dozen other children, and uh, that fit, you know, certain police files that they had. Um, and so Peter Woodcock was uh, charged with the murder of Carol Voice. This, uh, in the background, helped trigger, there was an appeal going on of Ron Moffat's case. This was launched by a lawyer named Patrick Hart, who's kind of the hero of the book in some ways. He was, uh, to use a modern term, a bit of a social justice warrior. Mm -hmm. He was famous for sort of representing underdogs and fighting for, you know, the rights of people that he thought had been you know, treated very poorly. Mm-hmm. He took on the case and fought it very vigorously. He won an appeal for Ron Moffat. So in the spring of 1957, two things are going on. Um, Peter Woodcock is put on trial for killing Carol Boyce. He is found actually not guilty by reason of insanity. And to clarify what that term meant in the 50s was that he would be incarcerated in a... Um, psychiatric facility until authorities decided he was cured and they'd release him mm-hmm. but in 1950s that meant pretty much he'd be there forever yes so this was not it's like it's not like he got out and got away with murder yeah and in canada as i understand it um to plead and win a case based on insanity is near impossible it's not um it's not a plea that is looked on favorably by Canadian courts even today. Correct. So Correct. the grounds of his mental state had to have been pretty strong. Yeah, there was a number of psycho uh, at the Woodcock trial. There's a number of psychiatrists who testified, and interestingly enough, no one could really pinpoint what was wrong with the guy. Mm-hmm. Like one person said, schizophrenia. Um, a modern interpretation might think, suggest maybe autism. We mm-hmm. don't know. It's never really been determined what was wrong with this guy, other mm-hmm. than he was very strange and very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and clearly, the you know the the court saw it the same way that they thought this guy is very sick. Um, again, Canada had very little experience dealing with people like this, and we so certainly think, didn't have the research on sociopathy that we have. Uh, at our hands today too so i think that authorities just thought okay well what are we going to do let's i don't know let's just put him in asylum for the rest of his life you know out of sight out of mind Mm -hmm. um meanwhile um ron moffat had won a uh second he has excuse me um he won his appeal and was granted a second trial good and this occurred one month after the Woodcock trial, so May 1957. Peter Woodcock testified at Ron Moffat's second trial, saying, yes, I killed Wayne Mallet." And at the second trial, uh, we had Patrick Hart, who was just like a firebrand lawyer. Ron Moffat himself was way more confident. He said at his first trial, he was mostly just terrified and actually broke down in tears a few times on the stand because he was mm-hmm. so intimidated. Um, first trial, evidence was entered saying that the bite marks on Little Wayne Mallet matched Ron Moffat's um, um, teeth. Second trial, they suddenly announced that, no, 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 we were wrong. They don't match. Mm-hmm. And it's never been explained what happened there, but it is worth, no, worth noting that I dug up a file from a couple I believe years ago, and in which they basically, authorities in the U.S., that dental, uh, forensic
Yeah. You cannot. It's really a weak, weak science. So you can imagine in 1956, it would yeah. be like Fred Flintstone kind of crudeness. Yeah. So that was tossed out. Um, the judge, the trial, the second trial only lasted a few days. It was very quick. And the judge said, um, I think that there is a lot of evidence that Peter Woodcock committed the first murder and very little evidence that Ron Moffat committed it. Mm -hmm. So therefore you were acquitted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He did, however, take the time to sort of chew out Ron, um, for lying to police. He said, oh, well, you know, you've got yourself, you're only, only yourself to blame for this. Um, then he uh, acquitted him. The judge, however, did make a very astute observation, which kind of leads into maybe our false confession. Comment. Yes, yes. The judge said uh, he recommended that police always have a parent or guardian present when they interviewed young offenders. Yes, um, which is something we take for granted as the norm these days, but it was by no means considered even wanted by police at the time. That's right, that's right. This is, you know, an era in which um, police technically, uh, you know, didn't have to uh, inform the suspect of all their rights. There was a bit of, you know, sort of, you know, so gray areas going on. And what surprised me, the biggest surprise I discovered from this uh, my research is that even today in Canadian law, it is not mandatory for police to have a lawyer or a guardian or parent present when they interview an underage suspect, like someone under 18. And there is no such thing as the requirement for Mirandizing either. Um, at least there wasn't the last time I checked. That may have changed now, but and you can certainly correct me if I'm wrong, but um, we always see this on U.S. television, and we see it on even U.K. television, that yeah, people yeah. must be read their rights in some form or another. It's not an essential part of a criminal arrest in Canada. Yeah, and also, you know, people tend to forget that it's called the Miranda Warning, and it's, as you said, it's an American thing, and it only was introduced in the 1960s. So like 10 years after uh, the Ron Moffat case uh, anyway, mm -hmm. uh, there was a Supreme Court case in the U.S. about a criminal named Miranda and, and blah, blah, blah. But there are all these different things going on. Um, Canadian law, just to, just to clarify, because some people get confused by this, uh, the criminal code says that a young offender, just like an adult offender, can ask for a lawyer or a parent during an interrogation, but it's not, again, just want to, it's not compulsory for an interrogation to have a lawyer or a guardian present. So just because that's a very important distinction. Yes, it sure is, because a child will not know what to ask for. Right, and even if police tell them, look, you can ask for a lawyer, they might be so freaked out or confused or, you know, intimidated that they just, they just don't really grasp what's going on especially if they happen to be innocent because the naivety right. of innocent youth is um is well known throughout the world uh, and the bravado you know the truth is yep. going to set yep. me free i mean kids think this way they think in terms That's of right. heroes and dark lords and you know and because right. they're the heroes of their own lives they know they're going to prevail they don't need help that's right. That's why in my book um, I have an entire chapter on false confessions because even today when some newspapers were doing some stories on Ron um, and 
um, online, and there's some comments. Okay, well, he confessed to crime. What are you, what are you, what's going on? Mm-hmm. So even today, people don't grasp this, but uh, there's been some studies at various um, universities in the U.S., and one of the ones that I cite in my book, this guy analyzed um, ex- cases that have been exonerated in the U.S. through DNA. Okay, so that's just 100% scientific proof that the, the person who was arrested did not actually con- commit the crime. And of those, something like, you know, very large number, like 15, 20% uh, involved a false confession. Mm-hmm. So, the, so in other words, you know, the person had confessed to a crime that even science says they didn't commit. In a case like Ron Moffat, what is the accepted psychology behind that false confession? I know uh, there are a well, number. Given, given, the, given the case study, there may be a number of different psychological reasons, but in his case in particular... Uh, well, he said, well, okay, according to Ron, um, he said that he felt intimidated into making a confession, that he wasn't physically, like, beaten or anything. He wants to make that clear. Mm-hmm. But he, in his mind, the threat was in the air, mm-hmm. that he was interrogated by these big, two tough cops. And in his, uh, you know, in the interviews, he just simply said he was just basically badgered and badgered. And here's a key thing. He was fed very leading questions. Mm-hmm. And some of that is actually evident in, I have a copy of his supposed confession. And they're asking him questions. Um, so did, you know, did you make a, uh, where did you make the bowel movement next to the dead child? Uh, and he yeah. say something. Yeah. Uh, they took him to the crime scene and a police claim that he walked them through it he says that they would sort of point to a spot and say mm-hmm. so you move the body here right yeah and he'd sort of go uh, yeah um so he said it was just simply a product of fear and intimidation yeah um you know he was scared out of his mind yeah and for the benefit of the general population who i hope had good childhoods let me just say something, not from any, I don't have any psychological credentials. I've done a little bit of psycho study, the same as pretty much everyone. Um, but from my own experience, I can tell you that children who grow up with alcohol abuse, um, with raging fights in the home, we want to please. We want to please, and we want to please pretty much anyone. And it takes a lifetime to get over that. It really does. Um, Sometimes I'll get cranky with people now in times when they don't think I should. And the reason is because I'm trying to take care of myself. I'm trying to make sure I put myself at least on a par with others and not be a pleaser anymore. And um, but for a young man like Ron, he hasn't he hasn't confronted any of those personal standpoints yet and he's still in that i want to please the police want me to say this if i just say what they want me to say everything will be all right yeah exactly that um in the chapter i wrote about false confessions um a, a number of studies and some of the people i interviewed they said the rate of false confessions goes through the roof if especially the suspect is a young offender because the young people are more gullible, mm-hmm. they're more willing to please, as you mentioned, they're more susceptible to either flattery or intimidation, um, and they simply don't know their rights, mm-hmm. uh, even if those rights are explained to them. Um, 
Other factors are if the, the suspect has psychiatric problems, so they don't trust their own memory, if they have drug or alcohol problems, yeah. police could say, well, you know, okay, now you were really drunk that day. Is it possible you went to this, you know, place? Well, hell, sure, anything's guy. possible. I mean, you know, our politicians can tell us that. <laughs> right, right. So there, and there's a number of reasons. In other cases, sometimes people confess. Uh, there's um, uh, been cases where people confess because they want to look, you know, they, they have this harebrained idea that it'll make them famous. Uh, Badass. A really bad idea. Mm. Other times, police will deny a suspect um, food, water, bathroom breaks, uh, which obviously they're not supposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, or they will, um, there's something called the read technique, which is a police interrogation protocol. And it's been um, criticized for leading to false confessions because it's based on a guilt assumptive model mm-hmm. that. You go in there assuming the person's guilty. You're not looking to elicit the truth. You're looking to elicit a confession. Mm-hmm. So a lot of leading questions. You're actually encouraged to even lie to the suspect. Like, oh, yeah. come on, kid. We, you know, we've got five witnesses who saw you do this. So why don't you just tell us what's going on yeah. when it's a total lie? So there's a number of techniques that actually uh, encourage um, false confessions. And as you said, it's very key that we've got a 14-year-old kid from a bit of a troubled background, not enormously educated in terms of the law and all that sort of thing, Um, and they were sort of, he was a bit of putty in the cop's hands. Yeah, and a bit of a petty prior record. I mean, nothing serious, nothing certainly violent. I mean, and I want to say here that I had made mention about the fact that he did grow up in a volatile home where there was alcohol abuse, but I also want to say, on the other hand, that throughout his incarceration and his trials, his parents were bedrock supportive of him. So I want to give them credit for that. They were, you know, they were, I think at that point, just unmovable in their belief of his innocence. That's right. And that was the one, you know, pleasant surprise Ron had was that his parents completely supported him. Um, they got the this, this second lawyer, Patrick Hart, who was, you know, like a very, like I said, a firebrand. There's a number of quotes in the papers in the 50s in which, you know, especially his mother says, I always believed in his innocence. Um, she also mentions he can't ride a bike. That's mm-hmm. very important. Uh, and his parents, you know, they, the family attended the trials, they visited him and when he was in custody. They did a lot of things that they couldn't even afford to do to try to support him. And um, I right. think that really speaks to their inner character beyond, you know, the obvious abuses and things yep. like that, you know. They really came true for him in the end mm-hmm. when it mattered. Mm-hmm. Um, and according to Ron, they even like sold their furniture just to afford legal bills. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the average uh, Canadian can understand that kind of sacrifice, but that's a big deal. Uh, The last thing I want to ask you about um, is when you met with Ron, uh, uh, the things that are important to him now when he looks back on that time. um, I know his love of family. He's got a a lovely extended family. You you provided pictures of them in the book, which is just wonderful. his faith. How does he uphold his sense of self worth as he ages? Um, well, I think that uh, he's he's you know one of these guys who's sort of gotten better as he ages. That yes. He's sort of come to terms with what happened to him because after he was released, um, he received 
no compensation. His parents couldn't afford a lawsuit. And basically no counseling or any kind of help, anything that we would nowadays automatically assume mm-hmm. for a young offender got, who had gone through such a trauma. So he did go through some rough patches, you know. He yeah. had um, trouble holding a job. He had some issues with alcohol, you know. Well, that's why I asked the question, him. because there's a sense for people like like uh, Ron who went through what he went through and to have no official recognition, not just the monetary, but somebody in a power, a powerful position saying to him, look, I'm sorry, you were right. right, And we were wrong. Um, you know, without that, there's almost a sense of, uh, false guilt within the person that you would carry. You would carry that with you, that sense of, well, maybe I am no good. I think that was one reason he got in touch with me was, you know, obviously, you know, compensation would be lovely. Stephen Truscott got recompensated. But, yeah, he was looking for some, you know, recognition, some official mm-hmm. statement or apology. And he's finally, uh, yeah, I don't want to blow my own horn, but he is finally getting a bit of that recognition. Well, yes, even you're coming on and speaking about him and your concern yeah. for him is so obvious, Nate. I really appreciate it yeah, because, you. um, you know, I, I really believe the underdogs in our society, they need us, you know. That's true, and it, it does, the case did open my eyes to, you wonder how often this sort of thing happened in the past, and even today, because we tend to assume, like everybody is familiar with the Stephen Truscott case, mm-hmm. uh, and people tend to assume it's a bit of an aberration, that this was a freakish occurrence where this poor teenage boy was kind of railroaded and you're like well maybe it wasn't that unusual it wasn't that freakish no (laughs) No. so sadly enough and um just to you know give ron uh some props here at the launch uh he um uh, met with people from innocence canada which is the group formerly known as uh association in defense of the wrongfully convicted Mm -hmm. and they were really just very supportive uh, they've invited him to attend an event that we're going to in October um, in Toronto, and uh, he's finally getting a bit of that sense of recognition. Do you know when the event time. takes place, and is it open to the public? Uh, that I'm not sure. It's October 3rd. It's a... Um, uh, I'll check my day planner for you. Find out yeah. what you can, Nate, and email me, and when I do uh, next week's episode, I'll, I'll uh, make an announcement about it, sure, because sure. I think it's I think it's very important, you know. I like that they changed their name to Innocence Canada. <laughs> yes, yes, it's the, just, uh, it's the uh, Innocence Canada anniversary, and the fifth anniversary of something called Wrongful Conviction Day. It's a reception at the Law Society of Upper Canada. I don't know if it's open to the public, but I'll let you, I'll find out, let you know. Mm-hmm. And Ron will be there along with other people who've been wrongly convicted because this Ron for the first time is actually going to hopefully meet and talk to other people. Yeah. And I know that there must be, there must be, I mean, how can you avoid resentments, but resentments don't lead to a good life. And um, exactly. I know that Ron's worked very hard to, to let go of any resentments and to try to remember that the best revenge is to lead a good life, you know? That's true, and he did. He ended up living in Sault Ste. Marie. He um, is uh, he was married uh, twice, so he's with his second wife now. They have, with his first two marriages, they have a number of children. They have grandchildren now. He worked as a caretaker in Sault Ste. Marie uh, School. 
tools for a number of decades. He does art. He uh, does a cartoon for the SueToday.com. Excellent. Sunday Funny. Mm-hmm. He, you know, enjoys puttering around at home and visiting friends. And he's just, you know, he's got his life together. And I really admire him for that. That is terrific. That is terrific. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nate. I really appreciate you bringing us the story pri- primarily of Ron Moffat. As I said, there were three Thank humans you. involved. Let's not forget Wayne Mallet, the seven-year-old. Um, Absolutely. My heart yeah. broke in your descriptions of, of his death. And... Um, not to overblow him, but Peter Woodcock, the sociopathic 17-year-old who caused this horrible damage to a number of families. Yeah, and, and the Woodcock case is all the creepier because he um, was interviewed many, many times subsequently in life. Um, there's a crime writer named Mark Borey who has written a very good book about the Woodcock case. And he never explained why he did these things. Yeah. He, was, he was almost casual, almost flippant about yeah. murdering these murdering children. Yeah. And it's really horrifying. And um, it... Uh, Whatever that element is that makes us look at another human being or an animal or anything that is vulnerable. And as one of my sons said to me just yesterday... If you put a camera in a room and leave any human being alone with someone or something more vulnerable, that's how you'll tell who they are. That's right. And um, whatever it is that we have in our brains or in our hearts that stops us from wanting to hurt someone vulnerable, Mm -hmm. he didn't have it. That's true. That's true. He was a very damaged individual. Yeah. And um, uh, I won't go into Woodcock's life because uh, the, my book was focused on Ron. Exactly, and, uh, exactly. Ron was, you know, the success story out of all of this. Yeah, yeah. And when you see Ron, and I know you will, please okay. tell him that our listeners have heard his story here, and I encourage everyone to get out and buy the book, The Boy on the Bicycle by Nate Henley. Thank you so much for joining us on Dead to Rights again, Nate. I really appreciate yeah, no it. No problem, Donna. I appreciate it. I enjoy talking to you, and... Um, you know, uh, I hope this helps raise, you know, Ron's profile and uh, make people more aware of his case. I hope so, too. I'd like to thank Mr. Nate Henley for agreeing to come back on the podcast Dead to Rights and be interviewed again by yours truly, Donna Carrick. Are you a published author? Would you like to be profiled on Dead to Rights? We still have a couple of slots open for 2018 and we'll soon be looking to fill 2019 weekly features. We'd love to hear from you at carrickpublishing at rogers.com and please be sure to say Dead to Rights interview in the subject line. Do you have a question for any of our featured authors regarding the book business? Do you have a theme or a topic you'd like us to address? We'd love hearing from readers and writers alike. You can touch base with us at deadtorights.ca on Facebook under Dead to Rights, or on Twitter at Dead to Rights Pod. Of course, you can always find me, Donna Carrick, on Facebook under my personal page or as Carrick Publishing. We're also tweetable at Donna underscore Carrick, at Alex underscore Carrick, or at Carrick Pub. If you have questions related to the book industry for any of our authors, don't hesitate to reach out through our online forums. 
Be sure to join us next week when I'm going to bring you a very special birthday interview with my own husband, Alex Carrick, author and economist. And I'm also going to bring you a short story reading of his story, The Madame Lasange's Defense. So stay tuned for that next week. That should be a special day. I'm really looking forward to having Alec on the show. Our Dead to Rights theme song and all story scoring music is brought to you by Ted Carrick, composed and performed. And you can find more of Ted's music at his YouTube channel, Ted Carrick Music. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. A dusty road, a man alone. signs go on hold and I don't know what you've been told but the years have turned my eyes gold and I told you what you told me we'd never be in the same boat for free yet it rides let it rot